Hello, friends. Uh, hello, listeners. Great to be uh, talking to you again. It's been a long time, uh, as you might be aware, since I started this podcast as a bit of a review series, uh, focusing primarily on music, uh, while maybe planning to branch out to other fields. Um, I did start a reading series and was uh, posting um, direct field recordings uh, from the reading uh, at Auto Shrunken Head uh, while I was uh, the host for about a year and two months, I believe. Yes, uh, a, year, a year and change uh, before the pandemic hit. And uh, the reading series obviously has been uh, scuttled uh, since then. Uh, I haven't pursued, you know, an online project yet. Um, it's something I was considering. You know, during the pandemic, I've been focusing a lot on my work uh, artistically. And uh, I, I think between, you know, being in school and, and working on a variety of creative projects, I haven't had the bandwidth, as uh, cool people say nowadays, <laughs> uh, to, uh, to, to keep hosting uh, Show Do Tell. Uh, but as the title says, in your uh, library, perhaps, uh, reading series and art review, and uh, I, I'm excited uh, to get back uh, to reviewing uh, music and talking about music uh, like I'm about to do this episode um, which will be dedicated to the album Rough and Rowdy Ways, which I uh, swear at times is my favorite album ever, which is saying a lot. I mean, I, I haven't probably uh, listened to as much music as, as many a music aficionado. Uh, I certainly have tried branching out um, after having kind of a, you know, obsessional mind about music um as a teenager and into my 20s where i got really into tupac then i got really into dylan and since then through a variety of methods primarily listening to wfuv which is a independent station here in new york city i, I was exposed to a lot of contemporary artists whose music i really fell in love with uh craig finn nicole atkins Father John Misty. I really, really enjoy uh, Death Cab for Cutie, too. I dived into their discography a bit. Um, and continuing, ironically, I've actually been listening to Theme Time Radio Hour a lot, and that has introduced me to a world of blues music, brilliant blues music that I have a very limited knowledge about, uh, which sounds wonderful. And uh, so that's a lifetime journey, uh, listening to songs. Um it's been a long time also because in the reality we're living in right now, I think I found it really hard to talk about <laughs> what's been going on in, in our lives collectively, in my little life, um, my little situation in New York City, uh, particularly Queens. And there were moments where I thought to myself, I want to write an essay about what's going on, uh, focus on something specific, expound upon it, read it out loud, 
throw it out there. And I came, I actually didn't come close to doing it. Always feel like an excellent idea. And most recently I had jury duty and was kind of, uh, dismissed, acquitted. (laughs) I was kind of acquitted from jury duty on a day where the snow was on the ground. It was extremely cold out. Everything's bizarre right now. We were lined up outside the courthouse, uh, pandemic protocols and, uh, waiting outside for, you know, 45 minutes to be led into the big room. And uh, it ended up going in a favorable way for me, I suppose. I, I do have um, scheduling conflicts that would have been significant if I were to do jury duty right now, uh, being my academic responsibilities um, at the moment. And it struck me, I was like, something about that experience of, you know, the, the gaiety of uh, avoiding uh, a bureaucratic uh, problem, <laughs> you know, or, or a problem of citizenship, uh, a dilemma, uh, you know, being in there, going through with it, hoping for the best and actually having it go pretty well, combined with being surrounded by the snow and, you know, our relationship to snow. I I saw this uh, touching video in Washington Square Park of a snowball fight and Washington Square Park somewhere I, I, I haven't been in a long time and I, I used to be there a lot when I was uh, attending the new school and you know right thinking about my dog in the snow and she's certainly getting up there in years thinking about her being younger and taking her big pit bull chest and rampaging through snow drifts and this time I walked her uh, after a snowstorm and she ran up these snow drifts these frozen solid drifts uh, at the end of each block and she would take it as a challenge and we would walk down the block she would see the the snow hill this hill of snow and ice and frozen and run up it and I would just be running behind her and she'd be leading me up this hill and down this hill and our relationship to snow as human beings how it's this external object uh, that falls uh, without permission, uh, you know, like rain, obviously, precipitation, and our reaction to it. Uh, but also my relationship with that particular snowstorm, which was significant. I think, I don't know what ended up falling by me, maybe 12 to 15 inches. Um, that was, <laughs> it was a lot of shoveling. And I remember I was feeling a sense of anxiety about the impending snow and while the snow was falling and the howling wind outside uh, my window uh, I had a sense of anxiousness over it that I had never had before uh, probably even more so than Hurricane Sandy believe it or not but we were all kind of taken off guard by that the severity of that but I think it was compounded by living during a pandemic and the feeling confined um, extremely limited options to explore in society, in culture. Uh, culture is almost a, a, a memory at this point. And here in New York City, we've been living with this for damn near a year. Um, the la- my last day of work uh, where I was uh, at present uh, at a place of employment was uh, close to a year ago uh, in the middle of March. I worked right up until that last Friday before the lockdown. Um, and then it 
show's over. <laughs> and I honestly am hoping so much for things to resume being normal or some semblance of normalcy or at least a sense that we are slowly making our way back to a society we knew which which had so many problems but also a lot of good things <laughs> you know like concerts ball games things of this nature um so i think there there can be a sense sometimes of you're you're looking for these avenues of coping i exercise i get really invested in things uh which connects with actually what i'm going to say about the album uh, personal investment the idea of personal investment but i think it's been hard you're always living with the reality of the pandemic. Even in the summer when uh, me and my amazing partner uh, got, were, got to go to a few art museums and we even did it for my birthday, uh, which was deep into the fall. Um, but there's always, you know, life will never be the same. And I think that is, it's a realization you count you count the blessings you have, uh, which is hopefully becomes mandatory at, at certain points. Uh, but we, you know we can all forget to do that. But I think the some of the dread, uh, some of the feeling of the dread through you know speaking personally of myself coping, you know the pounding of my sneakers against the pavement as I jog on another wintry evening. Um, you know, over snow and trying to remain active and not kind of give in to a sense of paralysis, uh, which I think is, for me anyway, in the past. Because uh, in Queens, we had such an intense experience. The intense experience of being in Queens <laughs> when the pandemic was raging uh, last spring, it... it then presented a bit of an automatic unconscious delineation that didn't necessarily need to be pointed out. I, I think in other places it can be a little nebulous. Um, here there was such a difference between March and June that you couldn't help but register it. Uh, and that helps you move forward to a degree because you're kind of not trapped in a sense of uncertainty. It's like that was apocalyptic. Now it's not. Um, so speaking strictly of the pandemic. So through, through all that, I, I think some of the, the deepest dread does come from a projected feeling, uh, a projection into the future of a world that isn't the same and never going to be the same. I, I do think we we will experience a lot of the communal uh, events that used to be the highlight of a lot of people's lives. You know, music, you know, sports for me. Anyone who listens, who who has like returned to this podcast, knows how much I, I love baseball and the Yankees and going to Yankee games and and things of that nature. I I do think there will be you know a time where that's relatively the 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 same as we knew or at least very close to it um 
But even in this seeming possible normalcy, which is a dream right now, still remains a dream, uh, looking at it in total honesty, the pandemic's always going to be with us. We're not going to look at things the same way anymore. Uh, And that could be for the better in some ways and for the worse in other ways. Um, But I think sometimes for me, there's comfort in applying the logic of a dream to reality. And the idea of you wake up from a dream and normalcy has returned, gravity is uh, back in full force, and you're not floating in an abstract space of your unconscious where you don't have control over anything. Another idea that I'm going to bring up talking about talking about this album, uh, control, a uh, sense of control over your, your destiny. Um, but reality yeah, reality's uh, not, not like a dream. It, it, days bleed into each other, events bleed into each other. Um, and I think it's comforting to have a notion that this experience will pass like a dream and what we knew what we thought we knew, what we thought we comfortably <laughs> knew about our, our modern existence uh, in, in the early uh, 21st century uh, will, again, be the truth. Um, but the tr- I think the truth's changed forever. Uh, the truth of uh, our human experience and our, our perception of even each other as a connected entities occupying the same space. Um, There's nothing that can challenge a sense of individuation like this, equalizing, insidious, invisible force. Um, I mean, it's, it's gone right now. The reality of a, a, a lot of the reality of uh, I am what I do and I do this and I go here and I am seen here. I see myself here. I feel myself here. Not totally vanished, but highly compromised. And it's only natural as a human being of uh, a. Ha- self-awareness being connected to those types of notions as selfness actually on a basic level and uh that's that's confusing um that is um there's just i mean above all confusing confusing time i mean i I think that might be the word that i haven't said to this point and uh again and that's why i just i haven't been able to do like a you know pandemic report um, yeah, I get inspired listening to, you know, Brady Sinellis and his brilliant podcast. Uh, although I, <laughs> I can disagree with his positions on, on more, you know, a few things, but his, his brilliance, his insight and ability to weave a narrative, something comprehensible from the contemporary life. Uh, throughout his podcast and even through the pandemic uh, is really inspiring. Uh, that kind of uh, monologue delivery. And uh, unfortunately, yeah, I just, although I, I would have liked to, 
maybe I'm slightly doing it right now, but I think in a more general way. Um, so that's kind of a little update. Uh, I'm okay. Um, thank God. Um, you know, I was talking, uh, to <laughs> my, my, my partner about this knocking on wood, knocking on wood right now. I have a wood desk under me. We, we had a conversation about that once, uh, about, uh, superstition, religion, um, and, uh, kind of the, uh, the irrationality being hardwired into the human experience, um, and our sense of cause and effect, um, the, again, to you, to repeat a word, incomprehensibility of cause and effect at times, uh, being so apparent, uh, at certain times more than others. And that is why I knock on wood, even, even with my, uh, all my life experience, uh, which might lead one to, uh, it might paint the portrait of a, of a true, uh, skeptic. Uh, but I'm not, I, I really don't know, uh, spiritually, uh, to be honest with you. Um, it's all just so mysterious to me. Uh, but I do knock on wood. I really do knock on wood. I still do that regularly. Uh, cause it makes me feel good. <laughs> so I just had a little sip of some, some, um, yeah, I'm going to talk about rough and rowdy ways, uh, which is a I, I think maybe Dylan's crowning achievement as as a as a songwriter, uh, as a musician, uh, the whole package. Um, it really reminds me of the work uh, Leonard Cohen did uh, late in his career. I'm a huge popular problems person. I feel like I might like popular problems more than anybody because <laughs> I really do feel at times it's, that's his best album. From start to finish, uh, the quality of the songs and the quality of the storytelling and the sense of a narrative um, not being forced upon the listener, but being kind of established, reinforced, revisited, uh, almost like a ghost in our own consciousness. Um, I, I love that album so much. And Rough and Rowdy Ways, um, you know, Dylan, I mean, it's easy to compare Dylan and Cohen. I don't think Dylan. You know, I don't think he was sitting there saying, I, I want to make a Leonard Cohen album because, you know, he's Dylan makes a Dylan album. That That's how he rolls. But in that sense of, like, harnessing the mastery of a lifetime, uh, you know, kind of bequeathed by a lifetime of experience and a lifetime immersion into uh, the craft of songwriting, that's where I feel the similarity lies. Um, it is the... Uh, the wizard, uh, the the uh, the aged, experienced uh, wizard whose uh, power is uh, stronger than ever, uh, I think, uh, on display here. Um, so, any anything else? Uh, I, I I usually do have a preamble <laughs> um, uh, about a couple of random things. Um, I was thinking about film noir today. I'm currently writing a um, resolutely gangster screenplay and I've only just begun to understand myself what I've really been trying to do with this project uh, that I've been working on for a very very long time uh, not in a not continually it is something I have worked on and put down worked on and put down over a really really long period of time something I never felt I got right um, maybe until now maybe not 
but I, I it, the working on the draft that I'm working on right now, it's finally struck me that I, it's it's a genre, a true genre film. I, I finally realized that there's a real significant difference between, say, what Scorsese uh, did in a, something like Goodfellas and what Scorsese did in something like The Departed. Uh, I was going to mention another movie, and then I thought it would only point out how awesome Scorsese is. Uh, <laughs> to to kind of compare two of his gangster films, which have entirely different ends and entirely different approaches to a gang, you know, telling a gangster story. One is a genre film in the style of a classic Jimmy Cagney uh, gangster films, and the other one is a realistic, hyper realistic, thoroughly postmodern or thoroughly modern or postmodern or whatever term you prefer, gangster picture, which Goodfellas turns what we knew about gangster movies upside down and then shakes it, (laughs) shakes what we knew and empties it out of our head and then puts us back upright and, uh, and tells us the story. Um, whereas the Departed has a more classical, uh, uh, as Scorsese has said, uh, I think he said it was like a B movie to him, but I, I think he he means that in the in the with the highest compliment. It is um, a modern telling of a classic genre piece: um, cops, criminals, big characters, big big characters, um, and uh, that that type of style. Um, and I love the Departed. I watched it again recently, and it really struck me that what I'm doing. What I'm trying to do with the thing I'm working on is tell a classic noir uh, gangster story in the vein of The Departed, in the vein of you know Angels with Dirty Faces or White Heat or you know little you know though though that that style of Robert Warshaw uh, as he uh, dis- described in his essay the what the gang the metaphorical gangster what what a gangster in one of these films actually is uh, not a real person. Um, but a stand-in for um, what we think about society, how we feel about society, and uh, things of this nature, how we feel about society, how we feel about love, um, the winners, the losers, the realities um, expressed through these uh, metaphorical conduits um, who are not you know, journalistic figures of of a, of a true experience, but are more figments of our collective imagination of what it could be or, or should be. Um, and I, and you know, I correspondingly, I mean, I've, I've watched, uh, some of these films. I watched see love last night, uh, 1989, uh, Al Pacino, uh, cop thriller where he plays uh, a detective investigating the murder of men who had placed private, uh, not private, no no uh ads uh remember those uh remember remember that remember that world uh you know like uh dating website for 1989 the personal ad in the, in the newspaper um they had both placed uh, rhyming personal ads uh that a particular woman responded to and he places his own ad and the movie and he gets involved with the woman who might be the murderer it was played by ellen barkin and it struck me about film noir the kind of grittiness of film noir is a bit paradoxical uh, in the sense that 
in a film noir, it seems like we are facing the dark side of reality. Just, you know, using that movie as, as an example, there's a scene I really like where Al Pacino is walking with Ellen Barkin down a sidewalk, and she mentions how much she loves uh, the neighborhood that they're in, uh, which I think was uh, downtown. Um, and he ends up kind of almost unconsciously rattling off uh, the different murder investigations he had undertaken in the very on the very block that they're on. Uh, two murders in the same building, actually. I think it maybe it might have been a parking garage um, that he that he was kind of nodding toward. Um, so a film noir, we believe and truly feel we are facing the darkness in reality. Um, and in the feeling that, ah, that moment, ah, I'm looking, I'm actually looking, looking at how dark the world is, a seedy underworld, you know, beneath my modern metropolitan life type of thing. So it's really, I realized it's that moment that I think people don't register as much as the actual act of feeling like they are looking at something gritty, uh, which it is, you know, from a violence standpoint, you know, there's always, there's always excess, you know, not excessive violence depends. It could be excessive. It could be appropriate, but there's always striking level of violence. There's, you know, bullets going through brains and blood, <laughs> you know, there's a blood splattering on the walls, you know, always, always that kind of thing. Uh, Connor Ogres had a great line about that. And, um, uh, salutations, uh, empty hotel by the sea, you know, about these, uh, Cretans, um, seeing, uh, rose pa patterns on the wall of, of, a, of a, you know, blood splatter, uh, some, something of that nature. It was a great line. He, he's an awesome, uh, songwriter. So, um, we, we, it's all, it, it, it's a wonderful magic trick because really what we're not registering is the sense of relief that the energy that we exert to avoid the harsh realities of our of our lives sometimes sometimes we face up to them sometimes we don't sometimes we take a glancing look at it sometimes we take a full look at it sometimes we don't um it depends what strikes our fancy at a particular moment but there's a certain amount of energy expended to looking away looking away is is itself an, an action that requires energy so i posit that the film noir uh, the truly effective film noir uh, actually does become a safe place because we have a sense of relief that we are looking, but it's still not real because it's a movie. But it gives us the simulation of looking and dealing with the deep problems and the violence of our world and the intractability uh, of, of these things. So in that sense, a um, uh, truly effective film noir um, is therapeutic, um, as therapeutic as a romantic comedy, um, or a romance, straight romance. And that's why I think Sea of Love is so interesting, because Sea of Love, it, it combines, it's basically a romance film, an erotic romance film. <laughs> I was just thinking about the scene <laughs> where, uh, you know, Ellen Barkin walks into the, uh, the grocery, uh, with just like the trench coat on <laughs> and like the, you know, the sax is playing and everything, you know, it's like, oh man, it's such a, it's such a throwback, you know? Um, but that movie's interesting. I love that movie for that reason too. Cause it, it kind of, it, it dances along 
those two things of giving us like the satisfying romantic story and the satisfying sense of dealing, especially when this movie came out in 1989, uh, when New York was uh, in such a rough shape. Uh, and I think that might have actually been the low point uh, before things started turning around a little bit, 1989, 1990. So it might have been like the kind of bottom of... Uh, you know, the crime rate, <laughs> the crime rate being high, nice use of the English language by me right there, but especially, you know, being a movie of its time. So that's what I was thinking. And, um, it reminds me also of the music Alana Del Rey and, uh, album I love ultra violence, which I uh, think is one of the best albums I've ever heard and kind of the comfort I draw from the characters uh, on that album and the aesthetic feel of that album. I, I think it's, it's really, really similar. It's, it's like putting on something, listening to that album is like putting on something, putting on a piece of wardrobe from the noir. Uh, you're, you're like an extra in the background of these lives that are playing out on that album. Uh, and you're wearing the the appropriate wardrobe. Um, so that's kind of what I was thinking about film noir. And uh, one, one other thing before I really start rocking and rolling with uh, rough and rowdy ways is uh, I have to talk about the Yankees. Uh, as, I, as, I, as I've done, you know, on previous episodes, we are uh, approaching a new baseball season. Uh, I am so... I can't tell you how happy I am that it's going to be 162 games... Um, that monstrosity last season, um, was really hard to deal with. Um, and this one's still going to be really weird. Uh, who knows when there's, well, there's going to be fans in the stands. Who knows when there's actually going to be 20,000 fans in the stand? Who knows? I don't know when I'm going to be able to go to a game. It's kind of not that important (laughs) compared to other things going on in life, uh, obviously. But last year was so weird, um. It was so bizarre. I have such a relationship with the sport that is probably too much, to be honest with you. Um, It's a bit of an obsession for me. So in addition to all the danger, the the actual danger that was that was going on in my neighborhood, in, in, in the in the very on the very streets I walked in. Uh, I, I was also really despondent about <laughs> this season. Be it really looked like it was canceled. Um, w- yes, without a question. I, I, I really didn't think they were going to play last year. I didn't think anything was going to come back. I didn't think the NBA was going to come back either. I thought everything was was done. And then they actually they play this after these acrimonious labor talks, which are just. Uh, an unbelievable, like a black eye for the sport. I mean that that term with baseball gets thrown. This is a this is a black eye for baseball, Jim. <laughs> like that gets thrown around a lot. It really was for for that the 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 level of acrimony and the legitimate possibility that they could actually play, but they wouldn't play because of a labor dispute opposed to the pandemic. But then again, maybe they shouldn't have played anyway. So it was really, really confusing. It was really, it was major bummer reading those updates. I, I really got, it was the first time in my life I really channeled kind of the middle-aged baseball. I, I got it. I understood like what this sport can put you through when you care, when you care about it. Like the lack of regard for the 
the fan, but also the the lack of regard for just baseball is like the dude walking down the block pulled a major scumbag move, and it just has his head held high, wearing and decked out in finery, doesn't give a crap, and just walks right down the boulevard, even though it is it just dragged a body through the mud in front of everybody the previous night and it just doesn't care um and i and i really finally understood that sense of like oh like this is horrible <laughs> like i don't i don't even care anymore i don't give a shit anymore about your goddamn 162 game season that then becomes a uh, a postseason tournament where one bounce doesn't go your way and all of a sudden you know you weren't the, you weren't the best that proved who the best team was you know uh, a team happened to have three or four games where it went eight for 12 with runners in scoring position and the other team went two for 10 or two for 20 and, and one team won and one team lost now we know that team was better um and it's like why like why and then there was this other part of me that cared more than ever I'm such a mark, you know, I'm such a mark for it. But I was watching these old games and because time had stopped, because the reliability of another season had literally been put on hold, uh, the the old games actually took on even more of a resonance for me because it, it almost felt like the baseball history book had been closed, tem- temporarily closed. I, I wasn't that alarmist to the point where I didn't think they were ever going to play again. But I really did feel like the book's been closed and it's been put on the shelf. And now you read it and it's it's so strange. Like I remember when the Yankees lost to the Marlins in the World Series in 03 after they beat the Red Sox in that epic ALCS. And uh, then they went down to the Marlins in six. I remember feeling like, I mean, I was a teenager, but it was like, hey, we beat Boston. And, you know, the World Series got away, but whatever. There's a new, there's a, you, you felt like there was, a, there, was more, there was more to come. There was more story to be written. Um, and then things coming, you really look, I found myself really looking back and being like, God damn, we lost that fucking series to the Marlins to ah like they were good like they were pretty good team like they were a good team really good defensive team and they had power pitching they could miss bats but really you know like there were some like kind of gate didn't give away game one you, you look back on these games David Wells hurting his back in game five uh having a chance a lot of chance after Ruben Sierra's clutch triple in, in, in game four, having a chance to win that game in extra innings. Then the much discussed decision Joe Torre made, you know, not using Rivera. Uh, cause I guess he felt he had worked two innings the night before he had worked three innings against the Red Sox in game seven and the game was tied in extra innings. So he probably, he probably only wanted to use him for one inning. Uh, so he went to Jeff Weaver and Jeff Weaver gave the home run to Alex Gonzalez, which tied the series. So the near misses, the nature of near misses, um, and kind of the feeling that these losses um, stay losses. And you always feel like as a baseball fan, you know, it's that great old expression, wait till next year. And then what happens if, what happens if next year doesn't come? What happens if next year comes and it doesn't really come? The, the result is the result, and you try putting it in a narrative, but nothing really changes the key fact that the loss is a loss, 
and I don't know, some, at least for me, something about being in the situation, <laughs> kind of emotionally desperate situation as it was, or, or just scary, uncertain situation. It, it just, it, it rang, uh, that, that mode of thinking rang, had a lot of clarity for me. Um, and it's just like, yeah, it's like, fuck, you know, like, gotta take those opportunities like it doesn't you don't get there every year you gotta fucking get the job done <laughs> so that's where so like i am like really kind of sick of it and then i'm like also as invested as ever and then the actual season itself was bizarre uh which i, I you know kind of speaks for itself 60 games only uh you know 102 games short of what a normal season would be and somehow I do feel like the best team ended up winning at the end, the the Dodgers. And the, the Yankees certainly had a the, the kind of odd feeling of the season, I think, being a Yankees fan was only accentuated by the Yankees, who had a ton of injuries again. Might have been heading for trouble in a normal year. Who knows? Severino out. Judge would have been out till the end of July. He ends up playing on opening day. Um, along with Hicks coming off the Tommy John surgery. Um, so that was weird. Uh, feeling intact, feeling, you know, all put together. And then more injuries. Stan goes down. Judge goes down. The beat goes on. And instead of the replacement players um, holding the line, this time they disintegrate, basically. And the team goes from 16-6 and six to major slump. Needs a 10-game winning streak, basically, just to get back on track kind of goes back in the tank a little bit at the end of the year. Glaber just doesn't... Glaber has a bizarre run. He did a little time uh, on the injured list, and he also has a terrific strikeout-to-walk ratio that indicates, you know, if Glaber is controlling the strike zone like his strikeout-to-walk numbers indicate last year, he should be having a great year. Instead, he's just not hitting the ball hard with any consistency. I think he ends up hitting two homers or three homers in like 58 games. Um, and the sense that you had with this team going into 18, that we are, uh, as Brian Cashman says, we're a fully operational death star. Um, that confidence has, has wavered a bit. The sense, the sense of confidence, very, very happy. LeMay, who's back in the fold. I, I do think Kluber and Tyon one or both of them might, pay pay off handsomely um but that sense of this being a freight train that you know you could just iron lock for a hundred win season going into the year 98 99 wins uh i you gotta see it play out a little bit more uh this year i i do think they will be really good i do think they have a chance to win it all um but i'm a little my confidence has been knocked a little bit um, so we'll see. We'll see how it goes. I really don't know uh, how it's going to go. Only a fool uh, attempts to predict uh, the wonderful sport of baseball. So we'll, we'll just see. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. So rough and rowdy ways. Yeah. So I'm on Twitter one night and I see Dylan has a new song out. And, you know, as a, as a Dylan fan, you're, you're waiting for uh, a new song and a new album. Uh, you think about it four or five times a week, at least in my case. I'm like, I wonder when Dylan's going to come out with a new album. Tempest was was very, very good album. Um, extremely enjoyable. Um, it came out in 2012. 
it still kind of feels like yesterday to me because I, I was so excited for that album to come out. I was just starting grad school. Uh, I remember everything, everything about that album coming out. Uh, but lo and behold, like two years go by and then another two years go by. And then he, he, he breaks out the, the standards albums, which admittedly, I mean, I could investigate them a little bit more, but like it, it wasn't it wasn't appointment listening for me. Um, I can check. I probably maybe will check. I did listen to um, to to some of that stuff, but it just seemed like you you really wondered like maybe maybe Tempest was it like maybe he's not gonna do you know you hear rumblings hey he might be in the studio. I remember there was this rumor on Expecting Rain that hey you know Dylan. He did something in Ireland. He did something in Ireland where they like filmed the band. Like, and I was like, oh, like, okay. <laughs> like, you know, and, like that didn't really, that just like that, that whole rumor, that, that never turned into anything. It was like basically like a confirmed rumor. So we still don't really know what that was about. So these like rumors would come, rumors would go. In the meantime, too, he's releasing these amazing, you know, the keys. I mean, the Dylan, the Dylan apparatus is releasing these. Great bootleg series. I mean, I the cutting edge. I, I fell in love with uh, the Electra trilogy all over again, um, and it was just amazing uh, hearing those songs being worked on in the studio, being crafted in the studio, and Dylan's process as a writer to kind of catch lightning uh, in a bottle um, and and be working on lyrics uh, in the studio, working on arrangements in the studio, having a real feeling of spontaneity and magic. Uh, to those working methods. Pretty exhilarating. And then, yeah, you can't go wrong with Blood on the Tracks, uh, Bootleg Series, and, you know, Scorsese doing a documentary about the Rolling Thunder Review. So there were cool things going on. It wasn't like a desert of content by by any means. But yeah, I'm on Twitter one night, and it's like, oh, there's a new Dylan song. And I, I really thought, am I hallucinating right now? There's a new Dylan song about JFK called Murder Most Foul. And oh yeah, it's seven. <laughs> it's like seventeen minutes. I was like, I, I, like I really didn't know, you know. Like it, it really, I did. I, I I was really so taken aback by that coming out. I was so knocked on my heels by that coming out. Um, and I like listened to it, uh, you know, kind of stunned. And didn't really have any critical response whatsoever because uh, I was just like, "This is crazy." And then it goes to number one, which is like amazing too. Just dropped it and uh, it went to number one, which I thought was really, really cool for all these ideas people have about what a hit song is, uh, what a hit song is supposed to be, and how you know all, all the notions of like, you know, here's how you do an album rollout, yeah. Yeah, release you know all these singles which I, I i don't like it i don't like it i don't like that modern way of putting out albums um and a lot of the indie labels do it and i guess the major labels do it now but like we're just gonna slowly put out one song two songs put out the oh hey why don't you just put out the whole album out of context i got like these seven singles from the same album like it's an album. You're supposed to listen to it all put together. So, like, um, he just comes out with this, like, insanely long song about, about JFK, and it's, like, a number one hit, and everybody feels stupid, uh, hopefully, but probably not, because I probably don't 
a lot of the people I'm thinking of probably don't have the self-awareness because <laughs> I, I just, yeah, like I, I, a lot of things about music, modern music, whatever. Uh, that's, that's another, <laughs> that's a whole other thing. There's a lot of, a lot of things I could, I could say about that. Uh, but we're talking about more important things right now. Um, so then, uh, skip ahead album comes out and to say like one more thing about the experience of hearing these songs um it really provided me a lot of comfort uh during this moment uh that we're still we're still living in but i would put my headphones on and walk around my my neighborhood listening to the album in, in sequence um and the funny thing was i i did it one more time uh before uh recording this episode and amazingly, it was it was so great. I found myself in sequence with the album, on the same walk, on the same route. I'd be standing in the exact same place at the exact same time. A certain couplet would play, like the 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 line about uh, you know, Sigmund Freud uh, and Karl Marx um, in my own version of you uh, getting lashed and flagellated. <laughs> You know, I, I would hear it, I'd be uh, standing on the same spot on the sidewalk, under the same tree, kind of a block away from my old high school. Um, so the same the same thing, kind of loop, looping around, <laughs> uh, reality looping around or being a bit of a deja vu, intentional bit of deja vu um, for, for me. And, and something like that in such un, unstable times, I, I don't think it was an accident that my unconscious mind kind of desired uh, such an experience um so that that's really really fun so i do on that walk is is when i decided i'm going to record uh, a podcast episode uh, about rough and rowdy ways because i think a, a little bit inspired by uh laura tenshirt definitely dylan i i just listened to another one of her episodes which you know brilliantly linked mother of muses to my own version of you um thematically um i think that was a little inspiring for me but you know while i was walking i i finally i just love the album i i didn't have some kind of theory about about the album uh which i'm sure dylan would <laughs> probably i mean i gotta get into that a little bit like i don't think we're really supposed to understand uh have a uh sensible understanding of what he's doing i don't think his music's really designed for that to a degree uh though it's really fun to try uh but i i i I recognized i i was like yeah like i have a way into kind of talking about this in somewhat of a unified way and it has to do with the title rough and rowdy ways which was the name also the name of a collection of kind of classic uh, bluegrass and folk songs came out um but i i don't think people have really um thought about the title in terms of the intentionality of the album and, and what the album's kind of saying um it, it's it's like in its use i feel like you know it's use of alliteration rough and rowdy and the way that invokes uh old uh, america the type type of deal it it maybe obfuscates that it connects, uh, I think, uh, to what a lot of the songs are saying. 
Um, and what I think it's saying is, you know, it's the ways of the committed individual. And I'm going to use terms like committed, you know, a committed individual, um, a conscious person. Um, I think Dylan has made something that uses his experience of being a songwriter, being a musician, who put everything into it, who went to the edge of experience, went to New York City by himself and during the coldest winter, like on record or some shit at that point. <laughs> it was in Chronicles, you know, I, I, I kind of remember. And um, living on that edge, being on that edge and throwing himself completely into his work as a conscious decision, um, that level of commitment to your craft is going to result in a rough and rowdy life and you will have rough and rowdy ways, whether you like it or not. And I think for, for people like Dylan, I think what he's saying is for, for people of this ilk, it doesn't entirely feel like a choice. I feel like at times making music, being a, a, a scientist, uh, obsessed with finding a breakthrough, uh, building Frankenstein, um, not, 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 I don't mean to connect those things. I'm not saying scientists build Frankenstein. I'm saying if you are uh, building a Frankenstein monster, or if you want to be the best mechanic who ever walked the planet, anything, anything, any activity, any passion, any pursuit that you cross the Rubicon and 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 go over the line um, into obsession, into late nights and working through your tears. Um, this is an album almost dedicated for those uh, folk, folks uh, out there. Um, and it's also an album that questions uh, that level of commitment, uh, that looks back with regret at that level of commitment, but then also uh, celebrates it and makes it seem like a no... <laughs> A no-brainer. <laughs> I wanted to say something with a little more poetry than that, but a no-brainer a no um, by you know, kind of looking at the consequences of, of what commitment can do um, and what the hero uh, is capable of doing. The hero is capable of, uh, say, defeating fascism and uh, clearing a path for uh, people to experience more and more freedom as, as time goes on. Um, so... It's an, it's, a, it's an album that's rough and rowdy. It's the rough and rowdy consciousness of the fearless doer, the person who will not be denied, uh, who has to do what they have to do, um, and consequences be damned, quite, quite frankly. It's an album of great intentionality. Um, it's all about, I did this. I did this, and I'm doing this. I'm doing this. I'm not entirely sure why, but I think I, I have an inkling at certain various moments of almost divine inspiration. Though I do get lost in the uh, the weeds of uh, loneliness and despair and doubt and fear. And um, I actually do think, you know, what I make sometimes is, is a monster. It's a, it's a real monster. And finally, I, I come... I come to rest in a place where I am not intentional, in a place where instead uh, things are, are happening to me instead of me happening to life.
And uh, that is the thematic conclusion of the album in a lot of ways, uh, Key West. But to kick it off and talking about I Contain uh, Multitudes, um, I feel like it's Dylan at times on this album deals in the, the general intentional individual, uh, the Julius Caesar in us all, <laughs> so, so to speak. Um, and then there's, there's also times where he uses his personal journey, particularly in music, his personal emotional journey, uh, as an, as an artist, as a songwriter and the other work that he does, the painting, his life dedicated to art. Like we, we do know that we, we there there's a lot of we don't know about Dylan there's there's a lot we only can guess at but we do know he's dedicated his life to, to music and uh I contain multitudes uh you know at, at the times where he uses his own experience as a jumping off point into the universe the whole universe of doing the whole universe of of intentionality uh this is a good example that uh the Partially about, I feel, just the joy of making art, the, the joy of being an artist. Then, um, the, the, the joy of it and also the pain, and, and, and this pain is in the inability to maintain the relationship, the, the inability to have peace in the personal life, the, the kind of the intensity, the fire, the fire of making the art, it, it burns down the, the domestic life or the, that life. It, 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 it can't, Dylan posits in a, in a lot of these songs, I feel, there's a delineation between the world of love. The world of love is, is a bit like a sanctuary and the world of his doing the world of of his necessary art, I, I think, is you know another thing he's driving at. His the the work is necessary. The work is not beyond question. The work is, doing the work is something that can be challenged um, within the person making it, but it it's necessary. Um, so I'd like to focus on the lines here. Um, Yes. Second, second verse. I got a telltale heart, like Mr. Poe. Got skeletons in the walls of people you know. I'll drink to the truth and the things we said. I'll drink to the man that shares your bed. I paint landscapes and I paint moods. I contain multitudes. So I feel like what I'm, what, what I, what I, what I get out of that is this idea and there's, <laughs> there's, yeah, there's a brilliant, you know, the cast of uh, Montadello and referencing Poe and yes, like that's there. But it's, it's the idea of like, we have a life based on order. It's our, per it's our personal life. And I, I actually feel like this was something Cohen also explored in a song like, you know, um, in, my, in My Secret Life and the kind of, the, the order and structure of the personal life um, pit, you know, against the, the, the kind of, not the, the, the intensity of the creative life, not the chaos of the creative life. Cause the, 
the work that come, that is produced is, is sensible. We can make we can make sense of of the work. We can make sense of these songs. We can make our own sense of them, even if they don't have some kind of a objective sense. But the people they know, he puts skeletons in the walls, <laughs> or he sees the skeletons in the walls of of people they know, and I and I feel like his insight into into life, his insight into the culture they inhabit, the artist's gift and curse of perception of seeing a deeper level of things going on and then writing about it. I mean, Dylan has talked about this in other songs. He's talked about it in Lenny Bruce. He said, you know, Lenny Bruce only shined a light in their, in their bed. Um, and this, this, I feel, and he's still singing that song, you know, he was singing that song like recently, um, those skeletons drive her, the, the awareness of those skeletons, the awareness that the people she knows or the people he knows, the partner, the awareness those people have that the artist is seeing the skeletons is the thing that drives her to someone else it's the incompatibility of the of the insight the the incompatibility of that uh having that insight with ordinary ordered structured life uh the the life of the dinner party uh the and you know the paradoxical i mean to talk about you know uh curb your enthusiasm so many of the plot lines revolve around Larry fucking up a dinner party, <laughs> you know, like they're at a dinner party, they're trying to have a good time. And Larry is that outsider. He's that, he's that, he has that affliction where he, he screws it up. He says something offensive or he does something. He's always committing the faux pas because he does not fit in this world of order. Cause, cause his, he, he always has one foot in his creative life. He always has one foot or his whole body or his mind is always so the the rules that govern the creative world are are at odds with the world of order um and uh drives you know there's there's such a poignancy to him saying "I'll, i'll drink to the truth and the things we said drinking to the truth they shared and the intimacy they shared uh which Real as it was, as absolutely stone cold real as it was, um, a real thing, real love. Um, it, it, it now another man is is in that bed, and ironically, he's drinking to that too, because <laughs> there's a there's a there's a truth to that. There's a truth to his notion that his role in society or his role in the universe, his perception of things was incompatible. Um, and then he goes on and, you know, I feel like the song is, is a portrait of, I I feel like, you know, the lines, I'm just like Anne Frank, like Indiana Jones and then British bad boys, the Rolling Stones. I go right to the edge. I go right to the end. I go right where all things lost are made good again. He's describing his job. This is what I do. And also this is what it makes me. I'm like a cultural figure. And the cultural image of me and myself as a real human being are, are um, if not necessarily opposed, they're certainly divergent. But this thing 
this thing that my work makes me, this thing that has, again, because we're not up to the monster, making the monster song yet, my own, my own version of you, but he, he's made this thing that has given him some kind of image in the world. Um, and it makes him a piece of culture. Um, so there's his reality as a human being or her, you know, if we're talking about a woman artist or, or any kind of, you know, like their reality and their personhood are two different things. They're not their, they're not their, their reality, their, their status as a piece of culture is what I, is what I meant to say, you know? It's like I'm in a painting that's hanging in the Louvre. Um, uh, that line, on, I'm reminded of that line on Don't Fall Apart on Me Tonight. There are moments where, as inscrutable as we might think Dylan is, he kind of puts just his perception of his experience right into a song. Um, and again, if the song began and ended there, um, if it was just kind of a reflection on his status as a quote-unquote celebrity in American life or a, a name that resonates beyond, you know, the, the corporality of the person. It's, it's the image, it's the name of the person that is now echoing down the ages. Um, it would be, it would be less interesting than if he weren't like really looking deep into what the consequences are of that, what the realities are, are of that, um, beyond his own personal discomfort or his own anger, his own sense of alienation. Like, no, it's like, this, this is, this is my, this is how I, this is like how I feel about what I've experienced, but this is also how what I've experienced connects to our, all of our perceptions of, of life, um, and the culture that, that we inhabit. And ultimately it's, you know, I can, I contain multitudes. There's multitudinous identities, um, getting, getting, uh, being, being explored. And again, something else that happens, uh, on this album repeatedly is then the denial of, of love. I, I feel like there's the, the lovers are, is there's worthy lovers and there's unworthy lovers. Um, and the unworthy lovers is, is being hectored and being threatened and <laughs> throughout this album, and uh, the unworthy lover is is um offering uh something cheaper something less satisfying than real authentic love and also less satisfying than the work the the quote unquote the work uh which is something i'm going to repeat the the work that that need that needs to be done um so get lost madam get up off my knee keep your mouth away from me i'll keep the path open the path in my mind I'll see to it there's no love left behind. I'll play Beethoven's sonatas and Chopin's preludes. I contain multitudes. So uh, really uh, a song that has also really grown on me. And actually when I was shoveling snow today, it was kind of looping in my mind uh, a little bit for for kind of the first time. Uh, Not the first time, but like I, I, I really like, uh, listening to the to the song, I it's interesting in the way that it reminds me instrumentally of a kind of slowed down uh, "Pay in Blood" uh, from Tempest, 
uh, whether the, it's the chord progression uh, or, or the melody, um, it's, it's kind of, a, uh, I feel, a more uh, deliberate uh, treatment, possibly, uh, of that idea. Um, and as I continue to kind of listen to it and listen to it, uh, where I wouldn't necessarily, I wouldn't say um, it was up there for me personally with some of the other songs on the album, I'm really starting to really love it due to the complexity uh, of the ideas um, and, uh, and that kind of stuff. So moving on, we're going to do False Prophet. And I feel, again, uh, this is where we really get into the world uh, of this album being a declarative, declarative, a truly declarative album. And I feel like in this album, on this song, I'm sorry, on the song, Dylan confronts um, the, the misperception of his work. And I, and I feel like he is, if, if he's not a false prophet, then I guess he actually is a prophet. <laughs> and we kind of, we, we have to kind of, t- I, I think there's kind of a wink and a nod go- going on there. Uh, but I, I think what he, what he's really saying with this song is like, I don't know if, I don't, I don't really care if I'm a prophet. I, I just do what I do. I just said what I said, but what he is saying is I'm definitely not what you're saying. I don't know what I might be doing or who I am, or I I don't have all all the answers to that, but I'm definitely not the thing that you're calling me uh, right now. Um, And again, responding to, um, I think, a lot of the criticism uh, he received um, at the beginning of his career. Um, so I wrote in my notes, I feel like this song is, uh, dedicated to people who have heard, but have never necessarily understood. Um, you know, and he's constantly returning the idea of, you don't, you don't know me, darling. Um, and again, as I said before, I, I just said what I said, um, so this uh, this this song again, you know, I, I I'm probably not gonna talk a ton about the uh, instrumentals of because uh, I'm I'm really kind of wading into thematic uh, writerly uh, stuff. But I, I something I really praise this album for wholeheartedly is the precision of the instrumentals and the sound. Um, it sounds so alive. Um, it sounds excellently recorded, and the riffs and the blue. There's a. There's a. I feel like there's a lot more life um, to the blues numbers uh, in particular on this album. Not to say they were necessarily lacking on previous albums, but I feel like they, the, the sound has a lot more color and a lot more vibrancy um on this on this particular album um so going to my own version of you um which is it's so hard it's so hard is this my favorite song on the album i feel like it's a it's such a 
exercise and masterful songwriting. Um, I, I do think maybe I resonate a little more emotionally with, with uh, other other songs on, on the album. But I feel like this song is about the act of creation. It highlights the confusion between creative life and quote-unquote regular life, as I mentioned in um, I Contain Multitudes, I think re- revisiting uh, that idea. The rules governing creative life do not apply to regular life. Dylan is appealing to one with a sightless eye, but the gift of sight sounds as much a curse as a gift. This applies across fields, arts, sciences, sports, whatever. The song is about the committed effort to a project, equivalent in weight to quote-unquote judgment day, as he mentions in the song. Uh, Sometimes we are all working on our own Frankensteins. Even worse, sometimes the rewards are non-existent or actually there are punishments for being uh, so committed to one's work and producing something which resonates uh, with humanity, uh, so to speak. Um, Dylan references massive anxiety, insomnia, and doubt over there being, and, and, and doubt over there being a light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, he references slavery and his perception that insightful geniuses like Freud and, and Freud, Sigmund Freud and, and Marx are punished for contributing to human life. They are being tortured by the chaotic, hellish forces uh, which prefer humanity not express itself to remain in confusion. But I, I also think the, the important thing to remember about uh, Marx and, and Freud, again, is that they produced work which touched the lives of millions of people. And again, to use the term I used on um, I Contain Multitudes, it echoed, echoed down the halls of history. And they, I think he's, he's making a point in, in the, the imagery of, of them kind of being lashed in the bowels of hell. I, I don't think it's, it's passing a moral judgment on them. I think it's saying that the individual, the, the corporeal individual in a body um, is, is going to absorb slings and arrows and, and be punished um, for going beyond what we thought was, was possible in, in humanity, for, for making a point, for making a point that's, that's mind-blowing, for, for having an inference about the way capital works in society or, or uh, psychology in the, in the case of Freud. Um, so their individual self is kind of put on the line, you know, put, put at the stake um, for producing this great work. And again, think back to, uh, we got Charles Darwin trapped out there on Highway 9 um, from, from Love and Theft. Um, again, they're, he's returning to that idea that the individual is a bit damned um, in, in comparison, uh, possibly, with, with their ideas. Um, so that's kind of how I felt, felt that. Um, and I also feel like um, at the end of the song, Dylan circles back to his own uh, creative realm. He references laughing and crying. He la- references the laughing and crying masks of essential drama. So we're, we're kind of, we're, we're moving. Like I said, there's, there's points where he's making 
a, a general inference about the doer in society, the creator, uh, whatever it is, whatever. It applies to whatever. It can be uh, Steph Curry uh, tirelessly working on uh, hitting a, a three-pointer from half court. It's, it's the, the uh, achievement. It's the need to just dedicate yourself to, to accomplishing the greatness uh, in, in the field uh, that, that you're achieving. Um, and I feel like he, he's really questioning whether the creation is worth the expedition into the emotional uh, polarities it requires. I mean, that's the, the, the laughing and the crying. I'll, I'll do it through the laughter and I'll do it through the tears. Like, you know, it sounds a little bipolar, doesn't it? Because that's that's what happens. Like when you're when you're trying to do something, you're you're pumped up by your ego, and and you're also um, the other side of the coin is you're experiencing a lot of doubt and a lot of strife. Um, uh, doing, I almost feel like the possible conclusion of. Um, if the song were to conclude, or this particular, because I don't feel, I feel like a song on this album, like my own version of you, might conclude that, it, hey, maybe it's not worth it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like may, maybe this 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 isn't worth it. Um, so, but that doesn't mean that's his ultimate conclusion in terms of the album as a whole. I think we're kind of being taken through this emotional journey of the creator doubting his creation and um yeah so you know and you got to keep on like to to talk about the 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 you know freud and marx particularly um i feel like step right into the burning hell where some of the best known enemies of mankind dwell mr freud with his axe mr marx with his mr freud with his dreams mr marx with his axe see the raw hide uh lash the skin rip it from their backs um metaphor metaphor the the burning hells the the metaphor and uh the enemies are the actually the ones uh, i feel lash doing doing the lashing because because there's obviously going to be you know some people are going to feel like he's um kind of disavowing their work or making his own moral judgment of their work but i think dylan you know he he's a uh, intellectual and I think he's open to a lot of different ideas he seems like he doesn't get necessarily attached to ideology uh, except the ideology of music uh, the religiosity uh, of music um, and he's able to kind of explore different ideas and philosophies without necessarily applying a moral judgment I also feel like kind of describing you know uh that <laughs> skin being ripped from the bag it, it doesn't dylan can be uh a, a little vent uh you know vengeful <laughs> on certain on certain songs but i don't think it really suits his mo to kind of celebrate uh suffering uh in, in that kind of a way um i think when he is you know brings up violence in songs or that you know he does of he a character in a song does a violent thing i think if you really look at it it's usually um from the character standpoint a lot of times it's in self-defense i don't think he he really um advocates violence from for violence sake 
um, in that in that way. Even though it, it all is metaphor, obviously. So, um, but yeah, this is just uh, it's it's a hell it's a hell of a song. Um, and I I settle on the on that idea um, that is just purely about creation um, and not necessarily a relationship. Um, it's, it's the, it's the creator's, it's the creator's relationship to their creation, basically, um, is, is what's being driven at here. Made up my mind, uh, to give myself to you. And I'm sure you can tell I (laughs) I stopped the recording. I'm not even going to try to like cover it up. I did, I did pause to take a break for a second. I had talked a lot, so I just needed, my jaw needed to. Like remember the guy in Men in Black who can like you know cr- like break his jaw and then put it back, the the alien wearing the the bug wearing the human suit I just did that with my with my face because I, I talk so much um, but yeah mo- moving along to uh, made up my mind uh, to give to give myself to you um, I feel like this song picks right up uh, with where um, my own version of you. Uh, ended uh i'm sitting on my terrace lost in the stars listening to the sounds of the sad guitars so i feel like through those lines we're returning uh to the futility to his perception right now at this point in the album after you know going into the frankenstein dungeon laboratory and uh making this monster uh, that maybe doesn't even do uh, what, what he wants it to do uh, at the end of the day. Um, we're returning to the futility of the creative act. Um, this, the guitars are sad. Uh, the guitars are sad. Um, they're sad in an inherent way. It doesn't, doesn't matter what, what song they're playing because the song doesn't do what we really want it to do. Or, or if, if it is, we, we have low, lower expectations than what is actually required to make the song that can actually do those things, if that makes sense. Um, and again, Sad Guitar is a beautiful callback to uh, Standing in the Doorway um, from Time Out of Mind. Um, uh, strumming on my gay guitar, smoking a cheap, cheap cigar. Um, so the guitar is sad here. <laughs> it's, it's not gay. It's not happy. It's, it's sad. Um, and, oh, what a song. Can I just say that? I mean, I think, again, like I said, this might be my favorite album ever. So I think, um, it kind of goes without saying, like, while I'm talking about these songs, like how much I, I love them. But I just got to stop for a second and say, this song is so beautiful the production a plus whoever came up with the idea of kind of putting that the it 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 sounds like so it sounds like the insert of a male backing chorus but the way it kind of just flashes into the song it just kind of comes in at those various moments actually reminds me of uh billy corgan's uh solo album uh, um cotillion's um, and the actual song, uh, Cotillions, um, which, which does a similar kind of backing, um, kind of similar feeling of the inserting of, of the backing vocal. Um, when I, when I first heard this song, I, the, the kind of tenor and the color of the, of the, of the backing, uh, struck me as very similar 
and uh yeah that's that's an awesome song and um the kind of production technique uh struck me as as kind of kind of similar here um so i feel like the the choice made to be the doer as i'm saying to be the intentional person the doer trying to do something in the world make make a difference in the world uh through the te- through the the laborious task they are performing i feel like a lot of times on this album is portrayed really violently or in grandiose terms later it's the crossing of the rubicon and in that particular song there's all this militaristic imagery and the doer is the commander <laughs> leading the regiment because that's the the level of the commitment is um uh fanatical um or whatever you want to disciplined uh as well very very disciplined very effective but the level the the degree of commitment to the task you better believe is fanatical even if it's under control in fact fanaticism people can be extremely under control uh while behaving in a fanatical way uh which because when you hear the word fanatical you picture someone ah like oh you know go go <laughs> you know acting like crazy but um it, it it's not really that way uh, a lot of times um because it's conscious the 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 what's being done is conscious uh the brain might have been manipulated but the but you know the action of doing a b and c is done in an extremely conscious way um, so there's a violence uh, to the choice of uh, the individual endeavoring into the intense individual task. Um, and here in this song, we come to this beautiful sanctuary, this immaculate church in, in uh, this, the, I mean, what would the, what would the world of this album look like? Or I'm, or I'm thinking, what would the, the sonic sphere of Dylan from Oh Mercy on uh, look like? Cause I, I feel like in a way, um, so many things started with Oh Mercy. Uh, the Dylan we know today started with Oh Mercy. I'm just thinking like what that sonic sphere might look like. Uh, the, the bell tower, um, the swampy town, uh, man in the long black coat, the, this, the, the urban, the urbanity of, uh, time out of mind, the lone figure, uh, walking through the desolate streets, uh, very much like downtown LA. I, I feel like from a ta- time out of mind. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's really, uh, interesting. Uh, I mean, I, I think it's America at the end of the day, but I think it's all of America in the same place at the same time, <laughs> uh, that, that, that kind of thing. So I feel here, uh, we do come to this, this song to me is this gorgeous church. Uh, I'm almost thinking of this church. I know, uh, I, I, I so not getting to Manhattan at all. As you can imagine lately, that's where my reading series used to be. Uh, there's this beautiful church on, um, Seventh Avenue, uh, walking toward um, uh, the uh, First Avenue, uh, but kind of make, making your way, uh, you know, past Fashion Avenue and Madison Avenue. There's this gorgeous church, a uh, pr- pr- couple blocks preceding this bar. I used to really like going to Tavern Twenty Nine, um, and it's it's just it's just such a oasis. Um, it's so the the garden out front is lush and green, and the architecture is is a uh, beautiful maybe i'll tell you that church uh because i don't remember the name of it right now but at the end of the podcast maybe i'll slip that in i don't want to you know stop everything i'm doing right now to find the name of it but you know i'm picturing that and choice is given grace through love 
So we're getting away from the violence of the great deed, the the required intense uh, saber bearing violence of the great uh, deed, and um, there's no creation which can match the power of the natural and celestial world. Um, the reference to I saw the first fall of snow. I saw the flowers come and go. Love is in line with the natural mechanics of the planet. The project will always be alien, misunderstood, a mystery perhaps even to the creator, the doer, opposed to living between genre and expression. (laughs) Why not simply love? Um, and I'm, I kind of went off on my own tangent there. That's why I kind of hesitated because I feel like that's the world I'm kind of stuck in at times. I'm, I'm kind of stuck between, uh, telling the same story a different way or, or trying to tell my own story, um, and not really knowing what the value of either, either thing is the, the value of, uh, attempting to create an abstraction, which is somehow supposed to reflect, uh, everyday, uh, American life or some middle-class white guy in New York city or telling a genre story and, uh, in my own way, um, and kind of walking in the hallways that other writers have walked in, um, that and it's like when you look at it that way and i'm i'm getting per, i'm getting personal with you with you now and it's like um these are the things i might feel caught between in my doing in in my my act of of doing and trying to be like a doer a maker of art and you know why why do it and that those con- those kind of contradictory notions of who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do uh they seem like in a world of shadow, uh, compared to the clarity of being loved and, and loving someone. And I think one of the reasons why I connected with this song so much, uh, cause, cause like I was, I'm in love with somebody. Uh, when the album came out, we were really falling in love with, with each other. So you, you can imagine like how, how much the song moved me, uh, when I heard it. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I, I couldn't help, you know, in my writing there, my in the writing of my notebook, I, I put some of my, you know, personal um, challenges of, of trying to be an artist in there. The challenges I, I don't think I, I really overcome. <laughs> you know, I don't think I really transcend my conscious of awareness of, you know, what I feel like my capabilities are or what... I even feel like the value of doing certain things are, you know, like it's, it's, it's kind of hard to explain, but, um, love, I think Dylan is also, uh, revealing in his, in his personal, you know, this experience of a deep romantic, uh, love, a, a love of, uh, comfort, a, a love of reliability, a love that, uh, reminds him of, of nature, um, you know, if I had the wings of a snow white dove, I'd preach the gospel, the gospel of love. A love so real, a love so true, I made up my mind to give myself to you. Identity, maybe, um, the identity we're conscious of uh, in our daily lives is, is a shade of the love we're capable of expressing through our confusion. Um 
that that I feel like is 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 a point being made. And again, you know, the this song piggybacking off my the the uh, God, I don't even know what to call it the the cauldron of of uh, my own version of you. I've traveled a long road of despair. I've met no other traveler there. A lot of people gone. A lot of people I knew. I've made up my mind to give myself to you. Um, being being at a point of this almost seems you know the law the the road of despair the road of I even think maybe it it it's more doubt at times and it might you know maybe it is despair it, it probably feels like a lot of things at times but I I even think Dylan's communicating through his uh, experience uh, in this song he's maybe hit a certain point of uh having dedicated himself to the the quote-unquote the work uh for such a long time that it's a unique this moment's unique even to him this this moment perhaps of what's being expressed in the song um and i'm not saying he's experiencing this personally i mean who knows i have i have no right to know that nobody does uh but even just being able to write something like this is is a product of who who he is right now and i absolutely love that and it's something I talked about a little bit on the Oh Mercy uh, podcast where I feel like that was the album and that was the moment where he really started saying to himself, like, what do I really consciously like on every track, you know, like here it is right now, like here it is right now. I'm laying it out right now, like where how I'm feeling and, and things of this nature and what I'm believing about the world. Um, and I think that's, I mean, that's on all of his albums and I think it's also on, you know, shot of love and it's all, but I think it's, it's came out most consistently, uh, on that album. Um, and I think he's doing it again here in, in spades where what I'm saying is, is like, this song is a product of where he was truly where he was, where he made this album. This is not an artist trying to sparkle fires and old approaches, uh, to his work. He, he's truly talking of like where, where he is at, at this particular moment. Um, so ultimately, uh, I feel, you know, pairing these two songs against each other, there might be an argument here that giving yourself to someone else is a more rational act than the quote unquote work. Um, so, and you know, that, that, uh, that, that is, uh, that might, you know, in, in, in the universe of these two songs, I feel like that might be the point, uh, being made. Um, so you know, and it's there. I mean, you know, it just takes me a while to realize things. So he's realizing something through all these years of, of experience, uh, now that maybe he, he, uh, didn't know, know before. Um, and everyone who has, uh, rough, maybe rough and rowdy ways for whatever reason might hope the gods go easy on me. <laughs> uh, I think there's, you know, uh, a lot of, a lot of truth to that right there so that's uh, made up my mind to to give myself to you uh at times i definitely feel like it's my favorite song on here but it's hard to say when uh the album's so quality all the way through um and again you know the mat you know again like like i'm saying like why do i think this might be my favorite dylan album my favorite album period it's in the way it's in the artful way that there's such thematic unity uh, going on that seems so consciously achieved because um, now we're hanging out with uh, the the black rider 
Um, here I say the road of the work is treacherous. And it changes. Audiences are fickle. Technology shifts perceptions and expectations. We can imagine Dylan in this way, referencing himself and the ups and downs of his own career. The way he embraced Christianity as his solid rock um, amid the difficult life of a highly visible uh, musician with a lot of expectations and pressures on him um, to produce great work all the time. Um, ultimately, um, he tells the Black Rider in the song, or the narrator uh, tells the Black Rider in the song, get your own wife, essentially. Uh, because the Black Rider must be the Black Rider, he seeks compromise relationships intentionally. Uh, compromise relationships where people might be involved with, with other people um, or uh, that seem doomed to fail from the outset for one reason or the other um, because it allows him to experience intimacy without threatening his commitment to the work. But in this case, in the case of this song, uh, the work is the black riding, you know. Uh, we got to think back to Blonde on Blonde. I got my black door bark. <laughs> fucked up. I got my black dog barking. I got my black dog barking. Yes, it is now. Yes, it is now. Uh, the idea of the of uh, the black dog or the black cloud or the black the blues uh, notion, uh, um, I believe uh, the work... Um, is being held up in that regard, uh, in that way here. Um, the Black Rider could have a black dog. <laughs> the, the Black Rider as an image, as a symbol, is very similar to the black dog, is uh, what I'm saying. And I find it fascinating that the song is from the perspective of the guy tired of the Black Rider shit. I mean, he even ends up hacking off his arm. <laughs> so... I think thematically, um, this song, there's, there's a couple songs on the album where if you see it, uh, if you're, fra if you're framing it a, a, cer a certain way, um, it can seem clear. I, I could be, you know, totally wrong. Uh, in fact, I probably, because <laughs> I think that's the great thing about, you know, a, p a piece of art is that, you know, you can make some kind of conclude or draw some kind of inference of it. And then, the, the the strength of it you'll you'll start seeing those connections uh throughout and you make you know and you feel like you're make, making the conclusion so i i do feel like in this triad of songs we have um uh a, a beautiful love or, or i'm sorry a a uh a dark song of creation a love song a sanctuary and then we return back to the darkness of uh my own version of you um and again if we kind of cut through because i'm focusing on creativity because it's, e it's easy for me to do because i'm a writer and it's easy for me to look at it that way from dylan's perspective because he's the musician he's the songwriter who wrote this these songs but again i i really want to emphasize that although those things might be on the table specifically and that's the way I'm hearing it because of my experience, I think you can interpret this, um, s simply behaviorally. You can kind of disconnect from Dylan kind of commenting on himself in a personal way. And even from what I'm saying and just look at it behaviorally, who is the black rider? 
uh, Black Rider, Black Rider, you've been living too hard, been up all night, have to stay on your guard. The path that you're walking, too narrow to walk, every step of the way, another stumbling block. The road that you're on, same road that you know, just not the same as it was a minute ago. I mean, first of all, <laughs> those are fantastic lyrics. Um, but like, behaviorally, this is someone who has been doing the same thing in the same way, and it becomes self-destructive because of the nature of it. And whether it's writing or whether it's he's really an outlaw, he's a sequel to the man in the long black coat, uh, perhaps. That's kind of besides the point, opposed to recognizing this person is is on the edge and it's all about to it's all about to fall apart. Now, when you think about it, the 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 really well, like I said, it's fascinating. The narrator in the song is fascinating. Uh, the role of the narrator in the song is, is, is fascinating. As I said, it's a guy who's basically, he's had it with the Black Rider. But I really feel like this is really, really bad news for the Black Rider because I also feel there's a, the narrator also has a degree of empathy uh, for the Black Rider. Um, Black Rider, Black Rider, tell me when, tell me how. If there was ever a time, then let it be now. Let me go through, open the door. My soul is distressed. My mind is at war. Don't hug me. Don't flatter me. Don't turn on the charm. I'll take a sword and hack off your arm. <laughs> this is someone who is looks to the Black Rider for, for answers. The Black Rider has an insight into things. Um, but at the same time, he's looking for an answer. He's also just completely... He he needs the Black Rider to be truthful, to, to level, um, and not necessarily look into the narrator's condition, uh, but just be honest about his his own. Don't don't hug me and don't flatter me. Um, it's really really. <laughs> I'm just looking. Yes the the famous the famous uh, lines below. You know about the size of your cock will get you nowhere. Um, you know, that obviously caught a lot of people's attention. Um, but it's, you know, it's about bravado. Um, exactly. It's about, you know, the, again, we're going back to the idea of the doer, the, the person who wants to do things and it has to be the, their level of commitment dictates the necessity of their actions or the necessity of the action dictates the level of their commitment but there's forces at work bigger than the individual that they're striving to to reach you know the city of god is up on the hill uh that that kind of thing and again the size of your cock it's maybe you know it's a little it's a it's a, it's a cruder way of putting it but it's like your level of confidence your level of certainty and bravado about what you're doing and how you're behaving and your insistence that it doesn't have to change. And you don't notice that the road that you're on has changed. In just a minute, it's changed. And you don't really notice it, because to you it looks like the same road. And this just simply can't continue. Um, so we're kind of circling back, in my view, on, on those, those kinds of concepts. Um, 
I'd love to hear, <laughs> I don't know if someone's going to email me or something, the arrangement of that song. I mean, I've mentioned Leonard Cohen a couple of times, and I definitely don't want to turn this into a thing where I've, you know, this album somehow about Leonard Cohen, because I, I, don't, I don't really think that, but I feel like that song in particular, the austerity of the arrangement and kind of that, I don't want to say it's a flamenco guitar, like, you know, the chord style chords Leonard would play, but I, I, I feel like, I don't know, there's some kind of uh, echo in there of uh, a Leonard style, um, you know, in, in that, in the, in the production of, of that. And also I, I would be really, I couldn't help but think, you know, I, I listened to the album a few times before recording the, the podcast and. Um, it's the one time where, or probably the only time on the album where I wonder if the arrangement could have done a little bit more. Like it, it's very the the lyrics are really kind of plain spoken and direct, and I and I can't help but wonder if maybe it would have been. I'm I'm sure they probably maybe tried like a fuller band arrangement the song because it really would translate well to different arrangements um and i i guess what i'm saying is i would be out of probably all the songs on the album like if you were to tell me uh, rough and rowdy ways uh deluxe would come out at that certain point hey maybe for the one year anniversary har har i know that's not gonna happen <laughs> but like let's say hypothetically um something like that were possible um that maybe would be the song I would be most curious to hear alternate takes from because I think it lends its it, it it went a highly specific and a really constrained uh, and not in a bad way. I don't mean that in a way, and I, and I should say restrained opposed to constrained because constrained indicates that it's an it's like a negative and it's like too good, but like it's more consciously restrained, and that's why I say it does like remind me of Cohen with the kind of focus on the on the voice really and the the kind of instrumentation is is um is not necessarily like blending into a symphonic um experience with the voice but it's really accompaniment it's accompaniment like true accompaniment opposed to kind of a melding as you hear on so many dylan songs where you know it's rock it's rock and roll and poetry um, and, and Cohen does as well, but that it, the, the austerity of those decisions, uh, did remind me of a Cohen type, type of song a bit. And, uh, it would be interesting to hear, um, you know, some different takes of the instrumentals of that, like a, a rockin' blues version of that song, which again, it wouldn't really fit on the album cause you already have like a few of those. So like, I could see why, like, I could definitely understand why I was like, let's do it this way. Cause it sound it's, it's a unique sound for the album and it seems like it's like man in the long black coat also could have had that kind of arrangement too. Um, cause we're looking at this figure, this kind of mysterious figure and, um, you know, the sound complements uh, the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of the theme or the feel of the character. And the, the kind of, also the space, like there's so much space in the sound sphere in that song. Like, um, it's almost like, you know, one kind of mandolin or whatever, like playing on a <laughs> desolate plane, you know, with kind of the like storm clouds overhead. Like it, it kind of, you know, 
brings up that kind of imagery for me. Um, but yeah, it would be interesting to hear. And like I said, I'd be curious to hear what other people think of the arrangement of that song. I, I, it's, it, the thing that also about that song, I, I would be cur- really curious to hear more people's opinions about that song, more like kind of hardcore fans. It seems like that song never really gets singled out on the album or people have outright said like, Oh, like black, right. It, it, it seems to strike an unpleasant, whether it's the, whether it's the line about the, the cock, the size of the cock, or, or the arm getting hacked off, it doesn't seem like a song that inspires warm fuzzies for people, like when they're talking about the album, uh, which I guess is understandable. But I also feel um, when you really look at it, that song in relationship to the themes of the album, um, it fits in great. Like, it fits in great again. Like, the isolate this is like the the scientist in my own version of you it's like it's like the scientist doppelganger maybe it's like his twin brother who's an outlaw but it's like that kind of the the alienation and isolation and the sense that like this person who's beseeching you (laughs) who's warning you and who's also asking you for help who might seem like maybe the only friend you have in the world is also thinking about chopping off your arm, which is an oddly specific, because <laughs> there's a lot of uh, possible metaphors there. You know, it's like this. I don't even want to get into it, but the appendage, you know, the the metaphorical um, possibilities of an appendage in a song that references other things, um, you can kind of pull, uh, make your make your own conclusions on that. Uh, but I, I think, you know, it's, it's a stark, it's a song that always, um, I remember, you know, I'm not rollerblading right now, hopefully in like a month or so, uh, but whenever I'm skating and I'm shuffling the album, uh, I never mind when it comes on because it has such a intensity and focus to it. Um, and it's, I, 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 what I'm saying is God damn it. I'm a black rider fan and I'm not afraid to fucking say it. <laughs> that's what i'm saying goodbye jimmy reed the religiosity of music the religiosity of storytelling there's amazing dynamism dynam dynam <laughs> dynam i know that's a word dynamism uh occurring uh between this track and the preceding two uh love song stark ballad hard rocker and i think even if you go back further than that the the sequencing of this album in addition to everything else is perfect i i sometimes like you know being such a huge dylan fan you always you have like your you put on like your um (laughs) your fantasy league producer hat and like if you listen to the oh mercy pod that i did as time goes on and you hear some takes that weren't used and you contextualize it you say oh like what if he would have like change track sequencing or what if he would have put dignity on it and maybe not had this other song or stuff like that. And it's, I feel like those conversations are fun to have, uh, to nerd it up in that kind of way. But I wouldn't be surprised if I never feel that way about this album. Cause like it, the sequencing's like, per, like from here to uh, key West, it's like, it's like a puzzle that every, every piece fits perfectly. Um, and, uh, you know, more kudos to everyone involved with making it. I uh, love the lines. Yes. Yes. I absolutely love these lines in this song. Because I feel like it, it, it points out 
like what Dylan does that like no one no one else does <laughs> or you just feel like that's why when you feel like you're listening to Dylan even if you have like other songwriters you you love like as much or close to as much like but there's just something about listening to Dylan where he like goes places and does things where it's like wow like that's really interesting <laughs> like that's great for thine is kingdom the power the glory go tell it on the mountain go tell the real story tell it in that straightforward puritanical tone in the mystic hours when a person's alone goodbye jimmy reed godspeed thump on the bible proclaim a creed i feel like there's a meta meta analysis dylan's making of like the arts as a whole and particularly his role in the arts um go tell it on the mountain go tell the real story tell it in that straightforward puritanical tone i feel like this is what many people would identify as high art in the realm of music in the realm of songwriting and it might be the kind of art we might expect or want from Dylan, but I'm especially thinking, uh, particularly because he's a lot. the The albums he's come out with recently have re- received, you know, strong notices and things of that nature. But I'm particularly thinking of in the '80s, where I'm sure there was like such like it's like just make an acoustic album, right? Because like, you know, like. I really like Infidels, and I actually really gave Empire Burlesque a really good listen uh, over the summer, and I felt like it's a really good album. Like, maybe it's not, like, right, it's maybe not what you want Dylan to do. Um, He's basically saying, like, hey, I made an album uh, covering this subject matter, and it's not, you know, it's not prophetic. It's not trying to be prophetic. It's kind of like a rock and roll album. And like in that in that way, if you look at it that way and you don't bring in those expectations, like it's an enjoyable uh, listening experience. But like the idea of like, hey, like, why not just make a whole album of dark eyes? Like just get in the studio with an acoustic guitar and just show everybody that you're still the be- you're still the best songwriter around and you can walk in and just play acoustically and come up with like this mind blowing album. Like and I'm not saying like he particularly is responding to that. I'm I'm putting like a projecting my own um it's not even a theory about what the song is saying but it's just the idea of i feel like he's commenting in a humor in a really funny way um kind of taking the the um the steam so to speak um out of all the cred that like of the idea of like that's high art it's like the guy with the guitar and I actually make those kinds of actually I, I record solo acoustic albums. So that's why it's like really, really funny for me to think about. And I don't mind cause that's just what I have available. You know, it's, it just makes the most sense for me to make music that way. Um, but like he's taken starch out of an idea that might be held by people who hold him in such a culturally high regard. Like, Hey, like that's real art straightforward kind of talk songs with the acoustic guitar that were written in the mystic hours when a person's alone and you're taking the intimacy of your own privacy and your own own aloneness and putting that on a track and that is representing the truth and it's like who else comments on not just songwriting in such a kind of meta-analytical way but also like 
even going beyond commenting on songwriting in a meta-analytical way, like, commenting on... It's, like, more of, like, a social criticism of, like, this is what is valued. Um, and, um, I, I just, I, I just really, really, uh, love, love that. Like, cause that's how I hear it. Like, I didn't hear it that way the first few times, but like, as I've, this song, it's always such a pleasure when it comes on. Like, for instance, like, you know, like yesterday when I was walking around with my headphones, walking around the neighborhood, listening to the album, it's like, it's such a pleasure. Like when this song comes on and like, when you hear it again and again and again, you like ask yourself, like, like, what is it really saying? Um, so I said, retiring from music with a question mark. I'm not sure that's like really what he's thinking about and exploring in this song, but farewell to this sound and all those who it attracts for love and or exploitation. So Jimmy Reed was a trailblazer because he pioneered like the electric blues sound um, an electric blues sound that inspired the Rolling Stones, uh, particularly, and, and a lot of other artists. But he was a trailblazer in that regard. So I, I feel like Dylan is saying, like, goodbye to this world that this sound generated, and goodbye to the people you encounter in, in this in this world. And he has particularly. Uh, negative feelings again uh, for the unworthy woman. <laughs> Definitely not the woman he wrote. Um, I made up my mind to give myself to you about. Uh, but the transparent woman in a transparent breast suits you well. I must confess, I'll break open your grapes. I'll suck out the juice. I need you like my head needs a noose. Again, just picturing a groupie kind of uh, or a group or a cultural groupie kind of a hanger on a dilettante um, who, like I said, you might genuinely love the music and feel like the, the music's giving you freedom and the music has created uh, this cultural moment. But like, I think what Dylan is saying is like, I love the music. I love the music. I don't love a lot of the people I met in this world. I'm sure he has a lot of friends and people like he he's met as a role but i feel like you know being in it for so long he just you know exactly like he kind of saw it and um the music is the magic um but the the world goodbye jimmy reed i feel like is saying goodbye to the rock and roll but goodbye to rock and roll world goodbye to the world of rock and roll goodbye to these people inhabiting uh rock, rock and roll so like the line i love this too another great line in the song i mean just imagine a song with such awesome lyricism and such a great sound and such rocking instrumentals it's like this album was like a gift from right <laughs> I, I swear like really such a gift man but like god be with you brother dear if you don't mind me asking what brings you here, oh, nothing much. I'm just looking for the man. Need to see where he's lying in this lost land. So I feel like he's he's um, meeting, I'm almost picturing Dylan almost imagining himself as a doorman <laughs> um, he, or a bouncer guarding the, the, um, this downstairs basement uh, shed, maybe in like this abandoned factory. In, uh, in Brooklyn or somewhere 
where real rock and roll is being made and people are jamming out and getting down with the music and there's this guy coming to the door, um, Brother Deer, and he, he's really thinking to himself, are you looking to exploit music, this magic? Are you trying to take advantage of this unified spirit the music is generating for your own ends? Uh, and I feel like that's that's what the 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 that at least I feel like that's what that dialogue is entailing. Dylan is imagining himself as this guard in, before the the gates here of uh, Jimmy Reed and the the resultant uh, magic uh, that that's that's going down. Um, so, and ultimately, as I'm saying, it's it's a goodbye. Um, it's maybe a sense that. You know, the music, again, as, as, as we were going to see in Murder Most Found, the art, the culture, the music is not mitigated by the corruption in, in, the, in the world and the transparent people in, in transparent clothes with kind of transparent, with, uh, uh, I should say, uh, opaque aims, uh, not transparent, because uh, some people aren't easy to see through. But it's, it's compromised. It's not ruined, but it's compromised. Um, so, you know, like I said, really fun song, um, and a song of a lot of self-awareness that's very, um, meta aware without, uh, and it's so smooth. It goes down easy. It's like, uh, drinking a smooth glass of Voltaire or some shit. <laughs> Cause it's not like sometimes when like a song tries being, very intellectual the attempt is really obtuse and it can be kind of it kind of throws you off because it almost doesn't feel like a song in a way sometimes here i feel the intellectualism is so smoothly in there um it's good stuff mother of muses so i gotta shout out uh laura tenshirt and her awesome podcast uh, definitely dylan which is a must for, for every Dylan fan. And the way she connected my own version of you and Mother and Muses, and I'm really in agreement with her reading of the songs. Um, you know, Mother and Muses is like the light side of the force <laughs> to get all Star Wars on you, while version represents some of the danger, doubt, and yes, darkness. Um I feel like in this song, Dylan's embracing the role of the scribe, the Homeric hostage, uh, etching his times into the tablets of civil civilization. Um, and I also feel, you know, there, there's been a lot of, um, I kind of get, get like right, right into mother muses. Yeah. Um, in this way where there's a lot of like speculation about like sing, sing of Sherman, Montgomery and Scott, and of Zukov and Patton and the battles they fought, who cleared the path for Presley to sing, who carved the path for Martin Luther King, who did what they did, and they went on their way. Man, I could tell their stories all day. Um, all I think that is, I mean, I feel like, you know, there's a lot of speculation, you know, like, what, is, what does he mean by that? Why is he referencing generals and Martin Luther King? Highly imperfect democratic civilization uh, has a way uh where you can have a higher expression of freedom through this form of government and it must be defended against fascism, I think.
think I think that's that's like the ultimate. I mean, I think I think it's kind of black and white. I don't think there's um, I don't I think he's saying what he's saying, like, you know, when the uh, when the democratic society hangs together and doesn't fall apart um, through that, future generations can uh, reach uh, higher, greater frequencies of uh, freedom. Whether you agree or disagree with that. It's fine. I just think that is what is being said there. I think Mother of Muses, especially, is a song that's really on the level. Um, and yes, there's 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 complexity, but I think a lot of it is a statement of intentionality. And it's it's a moment in the album where he embraces um, the role of the artist. And like I said, it's as Laura Tencher pointed out, it has a it's it's like. Ver- version of you and mother of muses are like foils for each other because we see the um need for art right and the need for the scribe and it's so divine and so self uh <laughs> what the hell am i trying to say self-justifying of course there needs to be scribes um, of course, this needs to be etched down. Of course, an angel needs to whisper in certain people's ears for the world to be remembered, for the world they inhabited to be remembered um, in, in a real way. Um, so you wade into the darkness, and then you experience the light, and both things are true, and both things are the experience. But um, to kind of and and to get back to like what I, like the the doer, right? The doer of the deed. As I'm mentioning, the committed person, like moving beyond even the artist and the scribe, but as I'm saying, like the doer in any field, like the doubt of the doing, the doubt of the validity of the work compared to the pain, compared to being flagellated in hell <laughs> over over your attempt to uh, have a deeper dialogue with humanity um, or save humanity. Well, it's like when the doer is the general fighting fascism in Dylan's opinion um when the doer is preserving democracy when the doer is maintaining civilization then of course it's self-evident as well it's self-evident that the doer needs to do the doer needs to do even if it's even even if it's a violent state of mind um that uh causes uh fractures in the in the life and in the in the personal life um, the doer has to do because sometimes things need to be done. Um, so there's a there's a real clarity. There's there's a clarity to Mother of Muses. Mother of Muses, I I see it in my mind. The song is like uh, MoMA, the uh, <laughs> uh, where where I went with uh, with my we we went there over the summer and uh, had an amazing time. But they have their 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 Greek and Roman room with all the the, the the crystal white pillars and the the surviving um, statues and um, the the there's a, a sunroof uh, on the ceiling where the sun can shine on through and there's such a clarity to the space um, and that's I feel like the song the why, whereas there's a se- there's like a secular darkness to my own version of you. Um, it's the individual alone, the human being cast into doubt, wandering in the desert, 
uh, stuck in the dungeon. <laughs> um, Mother of Muses uh, brings that the doer, the scribe, the general, the 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 person that it needs to get done. Um, there's your inspiration, the divine inspiration to accomplish your your aims. Uh, for the greater purposes and that's the beauty of that line the greater purposes is for everyone to experience the freedom of america the ideals of america it's martin luther king you know the um the american dream is is every is for everybody and the america i think dylan's saying like the american dream has validity um and, and uh we we gotta get there as a society but like for for the battle again you know for the battle of the imperfect democratic society against some alternative for that to have been lost all might have been lost uh or the progress of where we are now you know might not exist so um it's a really interesting place for bob dylan to go in a song um i guess not one he's gone before uh, but i you know it's it's it, Again, it fits in perfectly uh, with, with the album, I feel like. Crossing the Rubicon. Once more into the breach, I says in my notes. <laughs> the furious point of decision for the committed individual. In life, sometimes we have to cross our own Rubicon in the face of reality's grand indifference to our fate. Not necessarily our deeds, which do have a quantifiable effect on reality, but our fate, which is to have our ideas, positions, and very bodies replaced in the grand milieu. <laughs> so yes, yes, this is the battle, I feel, of, again, the doer, the person doing the deeds, um, crossing the Rubicon at great personal risk. Uh, when they know when they when they know that ultimately it might all be in vain or at least their body is in vain their their deed the deed that they're reaching to accomplish in their mind has superseded their bodily state um so we have all these references to nature again um the killing frost is on the ground and the autumn leaves are gone i lit the torch i looked to the east and i crossed the rubicon the closing lines of, of the song and again to talk about corporality i can feel the bones beneath my skin and they're trembling with rage i'll make your wife a widow you'll never see old age uh talking about the bones uh beneath the epidermis again the body the body is trembling with in the face of the deed that that uh must must be accomplished and the deed and the goal is is uh bigger bigger than the person uh which ironically you know i recommend uh listening to leonard cohen's uh post post times uh, post posthumous album it has a song called the goal uh, which is uh, very very interesting uh make makes that kind of point um the committed individual thinks things like i need to re i need to redeem time i've idly spent uh makes me think of shakespeare um i wasted time now doth time waste me in effect we are driven to acts of perceived greatness by both the demands of our culture but also the mortality uh, life's uh, uh the nature of mortality itself 
Something must be done or left behind. It's probably better to be the pretty boy. Not marshalling his regiment. <laughs> and by that I mean I'm I'm referencing um the the pretty boy. I believe he uh comes in at the at the uh, towards the end of the song. Let me see. Go see some pretty boy. <laughs> yeah, here we go. You won't find any happiness here, nor happiness or joy. Oh, that's fun. Go back to the gutter. Try your luck. Find you some nice pretty boy. So again, you know, gutter and the city of God is on the hill. Like uh, going back to you know early, earlier in the album, that line earlier in the album. Like it's the idea that the gut. This is not like a literal gutter, but the 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 gutter is the person is the reality of the person not not trying to accomplish these things, uh, not trying to reach the city of God that is on the hill. Um, so the pretty boy is in the gutter, and the, the pretty boy is, is not marching uh, to accomplish some great deed. Uh, the pretty boy is just being a pretty boy. And he's telling this woman again, or this person, this guy, this woman, this individual who... Um, the, this, the situation doesn't work because my demands as a doer, um, do not correspond to the normality of a, of a functioning relationship, right? So you go find some nice pretty boy in the gutter of experience who's not trying to do great things. Tell me how many men I need and who I can count upon. I strap my belt, I button my coat, and I cross the Rubicon. And, uh, that's... That, I feel, is what's going on there. We're kind of revisiting a similar train of thought to um, uh, I Contain Multitudes, where the relationship and the doer, the being in a relationship with this doing person of these deeds isn't, isn't working. You can't have the both things, I feel, according to this, this, this particular thesis. Um, now... How does it match up with the true love expressed on I've made up my mind to give it? Well, again, that is springing from the doubt that this isn't worth it. So just imagine the general crossing the Rubicon and finding himself face down in a river with an arrow in his chest. He might be thinking at that point, you know what? That pretty boy is actually smarter than me. <laughs> I might reach that. But this, again, is a song of commitment. Um, this is a song of commitment. So we don't we don't get that perspective. This is just straight up, I am doing the shit. Period. So we we don't have that going on. We don't have that doubt going on. It ten, the songs of doubt are the songs of doubt. The songs of love is second sanctuary. Or songs of love is sanctuary, and the songs of commitment are songs of commitment. And they they follow. Then that's the the lyrics are so muscular. Probably that's one of the reasons why they are so muscular because they they embrace the train of thought. And they don't dive, divest, they don't take detours, they're like, here we go, this is what we're doing, this is what I'm writing about, this is what I'm writing toward, and and uh, there's consistency. And the, the, the symbolism and the metaphors and the imagery, they build and build and build, because you keep revisiting the same kind of concept in each verse, it gets stronger and stronger uh, as you go. It either gets stronger or stronger, or there's a consistency throughout that doesn't flag, um, and the lyrics are strong. Um... So did I, did I did I have anything else to say about this? Um, oh yes, I did. <laughs> After the third to final verse, 
Dylan seems to express his doubt with an, oh, Lord. And that's, that's, you can listen to that yourself. You will hear that. So there actually, there's, there's some doubt, uh, cause he's like, oh, Lord. But you, you know, he's, he's going through with this. Like, he's not expressing that lyrically, but he's expressing spiritually, like, oh, Lord, like, I am gonna cross the Rubicon, and it is hard work. Um, in the reference to military commanders in the last song, um, I think it's very intentional that a song that references military commanders is followed by a guy about to lead a legion uh, boot deep uh, through the, you know, through the blood or whatever you want to call it, you know, into, you know, into, into combat. Uh, don't think that's accidental. Suggesting that without committed people, ideals like freedom cannot survive. So again, you need the doer. You need me. You need me on that wall. <laughs> you want me at the, on that wall you need me on that wall what would you do without me um and in this way if the doing uh is a necessity at times any kind of doing is a necessity at times so this album that we're listening to right now um had to exist um and i say that about like the best works of art like they had to be they had to be made um things certain things just need to be done um so why why it's a mystery uh, but I think that might be also the point Dylan's making about his songwriting as a whole. It, it had to be because it had to be. Um, it had to be done. Key West. Boy. Key West, uh, parentheses, philosopher, pirate. I always forget that. Um, in some ways, the true thematic endpoint of the album. To this point, the narrator has wrestled with his polarities, between the need to work and desire to rest, between the necessity of greatness uh, to not only document civilization, but actually actively save it, and it not really being worth it. <laughs> now we come to something the narrator really deserves, a vacation, <laughs> a getaway. We come to a sanctuary in the form of a place. As a foil for the conscious intentionality found throughout the album, where it's constantly I will, I must, things instead happen to the passive narrator in this song. To conclude, Dylan is paradoxically waking us up to reality through this dreamlike place. And I'll, I will explain more of what I mean there. But in terms of things happening to the people in the song or the narrator in the song opposed to the doer doing we've, we've come to the end of that. And I feel like Dylan is now showing us this is re this is really, th this is reality more so than the doer doing or not doing. It's actually reality is really a mix of what you do, but it's also a lot of things just happen to you, whether you like it or not, uh, whether you want them to or not. Um, and Key West is the place on this album, uh, the literal place, and it's also the place on this album where we come to a point where uh, we must accept, even if we want to do, and even if we want to be the master of our own destinies, uh, sometimes in life things, things just happen. Um, and it starts with McKinley. McKinley hollered, McKinley squalled. The doctor said, hey, McKinley. He doesn't say, hey, McKinley, but he says, McKinley, death is on the wall. Say it to me if you got something to confess. You know, you're going to die. 
uh, you can scream all you want, <laughs> but sometimes, you know, as I'm, as the song is going to repeatedly revisit, things just happen that are beyond your control. And, um, that is, that's reality. That's really reality too. Um, beyond the, the problems of choice and wanting to do or not wanting to do, there's also just things that happen. And uh, that's not something the albums really wrestle with until now. And to do it through a place and descriptive writing about place is uh, is a pretty amazing uh, way to do it. Um, so here we go. What else happens? China blossoms of a toxic plant. They can make you dizzy. I'd like to help you, but I can't. So we have, you know, the blossoms of a toxic plant. They happen to the narrator. They happen to him and they put him in a state where he can't really do anything. Something has happened to him instead of him happening to the world. Um, go down a little further to probably my favorite, <laughs> my favorite part of the song, which again caused uh, some confusion among people. It's like, like, I don't understand like why this is in here. I'll try to maybe give my theory. 12 years old, they put me in a suit forced me to marry a prostitute there were gold fringes on her wedding dress that's my story but not where it ends she's still cute and we're still friends life is something between what we want to happen and what happens to us we stay to the left and move to the right we are in the middle between heaven and the netherworld dylan wrote about key west because it seemed an apt metaphor for this drowsy truth of existence you can be forced to marry a prostitute and still wind up friends with her you married her and that wasn't your choice but being friends might be but at that point when you're still friends we've kind of lost choice in the haze of truth the truth is that truth is between all things the the truth that contradicts the truth that muddies the truth that makes everything, even, you know, your own day-to-day -day life is like, how, how much of this is mine, really? How, mu how much, how much authorial, <laughs> how much, how much of an authorial imprint do I have on my day-to-day -day life? <clears throat> so people were really thrown by 12 years old. They put me in a suit, forced me, what, 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 what the hell is he? Obviously that didn't happen to him, you <laughs> know, in, in a literal way. And it's such a strong, like, image. It's such a bold kind of, you know, I wouldn't say controversial image. I mean, it's a literary image for, for God's sake, but it is, it is, uh, you know, it, it conjures maybe a sense of confusion, but I think that is what it's saying. It's, it's, it's another thing that, that kind of happens to you. And we have reached this place on the album where after all this toil, after all this doing, after all this intentionality, intentionality and doubt and, and intense love, intense love as a, as a, as a counterpoint to, to all that, all this intensity, all this fire, all this fire, you know, going on, we, we settle into Key West. We settle into the lolling rhythm of the song and the, downright perfect accompanying instrumentation and uh dylan's phyllis open-ended lyrics like we're, fi we're finally in a more open-ended space of you know kind of moving beyond the consequences of acting or not acting or loving and not loving and now we're in the middle we're in this middle 
um, which is which is what reality often is, as I'm saying. And uh, I feel uh, strongly that the album could have ended here, and it still would have been my favorite album ever. <laughs> and I really thought that again today. I was like, this is such a perfect thematic close to the album. It makes so much sense. I've heard rumors. They're they're not confirmed rumors, but they're they're whispers on like expecting rain and other places online that murder most foul wasn't in the original track listing and that um the this was supposed to be the end of the album and maybe murder most foul was supposed to be a single and it did so well uh, or an outtake and, and people loved it so much they're like all right f it we'll put it on the album i don't know if dylan would have gone for something like that i mean i feel like dylan makes such definitive choices uh with track listings he's done it in the past um i don't think he would necessarily like just change his mind about putting something on because it went to number one uh or was a huge hit song who knows uh who the hell knows but what i am saying is there is something to the idea that key west is i feel a logical thematic end to the album where we like i'm saying we go from uh this this persistent intentionality this declaration of who I am, this declaration of what I do, what are the positives and negatives, what are the consequences, what is the good for me, what's the bad, I contain multitudes, and we're in that space in life. I mean, it just reminds me of, you know, like walking out of Yankee Stadium on a 95-degree day when, God willing, I can see a baseball game again, but I'm thinking of this particular time in 2012, uh, they were playing the White Sox, and it was so hot, and I was, you know, watched the whole nine innings. Rafael Soriano got the save, and he untucked his shirt, and I and I and I walked out of there with my dad, and it it didn't hit, and I I felt at times like the heat had really gotten to me uh, while we were on the way uh, to the car, but for some reason I had this moment. I was wearing sunglasses. I took the sunglasses off and I put them on my hat. That moment of taking my sunglasses off and putting them on my hat, I had such a moment of per- depersonalization, of of just being heat dazed, <laughs> dazed by the heat. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know where I was. I didn't know what I was doing. I just felt like I was melting, <laughs> and I was going to melt. And this this the world in front of me was wavy gravy. I don't know what the hell is going on um for for a few seconds like i just tweaked out i freaked out you know like you, you ever have a moment like that four or five seconds where you, you you don't know what the hell you have no identity you're you're an empty vessel um uh, for for some reason and um emptiness you know it's a buddhist buddhist concept uh but there i feel like you know key key west is open-ended emptiness uh that hasn't been on the album before where as i'm saying there's an unavoidable passivity to life and a sense of things just happen to you. Um, you don't always, you know, kind of control, uh, you know, even if, even if you are this or you are that, you know, in this heat, in this hazy heat of this environment, um, the truth about yourself is, it's not so clear. Um, so yeah, uh, love that song, but, um, we're not done. Uh, because Murder Most Foul is on the album. <laughs> and it only makes the album better, because it's, it's incredible. It only makes the album better. Um, so, here we go. The indifference of violence to quote-unquote greatness. 
Kennedy represents an embodiment of all the work referenced on the album. He's described as being shot like a dog, mocked and shocked, having his brains blown out. The implication being that even if you are one of ye gifted kings and queens, uh, to reference uh, I Dreamed of Saint Augustine, you're living in the same society where the president can be made to quote-unquote disappear like a magic trick. Um, Then what we... Um, dedicate uh, we dedicate ourselves to the work okay (laughs) I'm sorry I got confused with what I wrote but beyond the essentiality of science do we have any credibility as writers musicians visual artists uh, in this society where the president could be blown away uh, like this Um, Dylan says Oswald and Ruby hold a truth that nobody can convey after the original sin of JFK's uh, assassination and uh, the Aquarian Age uh, being an illusion uh, involving, you know, where heroes are disposable. The heroes of an age are disposable. Um, The song is one of abiding hope, however. Like he says, they still haven't found JFK's soul. The American soul uh, lives on through the old and the new, from Patsy Cline to the Eagles, to what I prefer to hear as a reference to Father John Misty, because I love Father John Misty. So when he says play Misty for me, I'm like, Father John Misty. It might be another Misty, but I say Father John Misty. <laughs> so taking it into the 21st century, well in, you know, well into our, our day. Um, Dylan does believe in the geist of a song, the energy of music, the essential energy of music. It is not something which can be destroyed, even by the most corrupt society. Wolfman Jack is preaching from a pulpit. But the fate of America particularly is very much in doubt. We can talk about metaphor and the power of art against the power of empire. But ultimately, America has so many sins it refuses to acknowledge, let alone to begin to atone for. Dylan is describing a precarious modern America. Ultimately, the songs may outlive the very concept of our republic, but we also must decide at a certain point whether the future can be better and how we can go about making that happen. We have to decide whether we are living in the realm of the president's death or honoring his soul. Um, And I feel like that was kind of my reflection on the song. I think that is all I am going to say about it uh, because it's it's such a complicated song. (laughs) So much has been said about it already, and um, I think I'll just leave it at that reflection because I will immediately go into such abstraction. Um, That is basically everything I wanted to say. I mean, the intonation of all the art, the intonation of all the music um, is there. There's a transcendent quality to it, and I think Dylan, in the intonation of all this work, the work his work, music, um, is finally concluding uh, that there was such grace to the work he did and the work artists do. And if there's grace to that, then there's grace to all the work benefiting humanity, all the the science, the, the, the work the doctors do, the work surgeons do, the medical breakthroughs. Hell, just look at the vaccine. There's, there's a grace to the beneficial work. Um, and sometimes that can be very, very muddy. Uh, you can really 
get in uh, complicated uh, places when uh, thinking about work um, and thinking about the work people do and the different kinds of work people do. But um, he has made a definitive statement here uh, about his work, about the work of human beings um, and the grace uh, therein. Uh, so thank you for listening. Uh, that was my thoughts on rough and rowdy ways. Uh, my name is Matt Waters. This is, uh, the show to tell, uh, podcast. It's, a usually a reading series. It's also an art review. Uh, I hope you enjoyed, uh, listening. Um, I hope it makes you want to listen to the album again, cause that's the best thing anyone could do. Um, and uh, shame on you, Grammys. <laughs> I don't really have high expectations, but honestly, shame on you. Like, really. Like, who cares? Who gives a crap at the end of the day? Like, who really gives a shit? But, like, you've got to be kidding me. Not this album not being up for album of the year. That is, it's, I mean, if we're going to go through the motions of kind of acting like it matters, then, like, shame. Like, really. Like it's an it's an embarrassment. It really is, and I'm not gonna watch it. I don't really give a, give a crap. I'm not I'm not justifying that with a watch, uh, unless uh, unless unless uh, she wants. If she really wants to watch it, then I'll watch. <laughs> That's how much of a coward I am. If she wants to watch it, I'm definitely gonna watch it. <laughs> so that's that's the extent of my belief system right there. But yeah, shame shame on them. Um, cause it's, it's, uh, how you cannot nominate possibly Bob Dylan's best album, uh, for Grammy is, uh, incomprehensible, but who cares? Uh, I doubt he cares and I don't think we should care either. Uh, but just had to mention it before I left. Um, be well, take care, uh, and, uh, have a great weekend. I am recording this on a Friday. Um, so anytime you're listening to this, you might be listening to it in the future on a Tuesday, but the weekend gonna come so i hope you enjoy it <laughs> take care bye bye one other thing uh folks uh the church i was referencing uh talking about i've made up my mind to give myself to you is uh the church of the transfiguration um so if you're in new york city and you just want to look at a gorgeous church uh, from outside feel free to go there it's also uh called uh, the little church around the corner that's uh, another name for it uh, take it easy. Uh, till next time.